This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain, Sierra says save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat-up old running shoes, Sierra says save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery... Well, then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From BBC Science Focus magazine, this is Instant Genius, a bite-sized masterclass in podcast form. I'm Alice Lipscomb-Southwell, the Managing Editor at BBC Science Focus magazine. In this episode, I talk to zoologist Jules Howard, whose new book, Wonder Dog, How the Science of Dogs Changed the Science of Life, is out now. In this episode, he tells us all about dog intelligence. So just to start off then, how intelligent are dogs? Yeah, that's a good, that's the, the big question. Intelligence is, um, is one of those words, isn't it, that it kind of means different things to different people. And when I think of the word intelligence, this is going to sound really weird, but I, I was, like my, my dad had this fascination with IQ tests. I don't know if this was a former, you know, previous generation thing, but he would make me and my brother and sister, he would say like, come on time for your IQ test. And you know, that to me is the problem with the word intelligence is it means different things, you know, to, to different people, I suppose. So are dogs intelligent? Absolutely. In a general sense, totally. Often, you know, scientists prefer this this term cognition, which is kind of like the, the science of how our brains process the senses, you know, the things that dogs are gathering about the world and how they make kind of sense of their world. So, um, yeah, are they emotionally intelligent? Absolutely. There's some fascinating research, particularly in the last 10 years, about um, how dog emotions, and by extension other animals, their emotions are like ours. Are they socially intelligent? Yeah, totally. You know, the way that they interact, the way that they, you know, we see our dogs play is, is kind of evidence of that. And are they intelligent in terms of understanding commands and are they kind of trainable? You know, that's that's something we all see in our day-to-day lives. So they are really unique i would say i was going to say they're uniquely intelligent i suspect they're as intelligent as you know chimpanzees and dolphins but 
those animals traditionally are much harder to research and get in their brains, you know. So you talk there about emotional intelligence. Now, I've got two Jack Russells, and if I'm feeling sad, they'll come and sit on me. Are they actually detecting my emotions, or am I just sort of putting that onto them? Yeah, I do the same with our dog as well, our dog Oz. Sometimes if I sit down, he's like, oh, hello, because he knows that I'll sit down when I'm tired. And I, I, I often think, you know, exactly the same thing. Is he is he detecting like, oh, this guy needs a cuddle? Or is he like, okay, he's sitting down. That's a good time for me to, you know, that's when he's not doing other jobs and he can focus a bit on me. And in a way that kind of gets to the the centre of the kind of weird relationship, I suppose, that we that we have with dogs. I, I, the reason, in fact, the book, actually, the reason I settled on Wonder Dog for a title is because, you know, it's in those moments we get a chance to really connect with an animal, you know what I mean? And think, oh, I wonder what that expression means. I wonder what that behaviour means. And, you know, lots of the scientists and lots of the kind of animal cognition centres that have sprouted up all over the world in the last 20 years you know, have been directly inspired by those questions that we have about the animals kind of nearest and dearest to us. So how smart are domestic pet dogs when compared to their ancestors, which are wolves? Dogs-wolves thing is really, really super interesting. And I think traditionally, you know, wolves were were, were considered the, um, the creme de la creme, you know what I mean? Like the ethological circles that started sprouting up in the 1940s were very much about studying wild animals. So it's kind of like, okay... Dogs are kind of like the um, adapted form, you know, they're the <laughs> corrupted form, I guess you could say. So that was the popular idea of dogs. And they were often called dumb wolves for that for that reason. And I think, again, it's just really interesting. I mean, for a long time, that was the received wisdom, if you like. Some science to support that, you know, wolves smarter than dogs. But I'll give you an example of, of, of one of the um, bits of research that really shaped and changed the way we think about dogs and it was this right so the experiment was dogs versus wolves this is experiment um early 90s and dogs wolves kept separate and they are given like a saucepan of meat that's in a kind of hard to get to laboratory setup so they've got to work out how to get this frying pan out from underneath i think it was like a fence you know fenced area how to do that in the best way possible. And the wolves did it. They looked and they scurried around. They tried a bit of trial and error. And you know what? They did really well. They got their food. And the dogs, the dogs by comparison, were just sort of whimpering and not really achieving as much. And everyone was like, well, there you go. That's proof. You know, wolves, they're brilliant. You know, dogs by comparison, they're just not all there. <laughs> and then in the late 90s, they redid this study and, um, and they accounted for the fact that humans were present uh, in this laboratory setup, and basically what was going on was the dogs could have done the task, but they were just kind of around humans, and so they're just like, "Hiya, can you help me get this meat from the frying pan?" So in other words, they weren't operating. You know, they weren't operating in a, a traditionally clever way. They were just used to being around humans, and they're like, "Well, these humans do everything for us, so they can help us out in this situation." <laughs> so that's a good example about how, you know, what I love about this book, and I'd say what has really inspired me and renewed my love of science is the fact that we think of the things scientists say at any given moment, you know, in that case, wolves, they're amazing. Dogs, they're not. And then a few years later with a few different tests, you know, our scientific knowledge changes really. And dogs give us a really good way to see how science um, adapts and evolves over time. So yeah, wolves, dogs, I would say one is super adapted to wild ecosystems one is super adapted to the human ecosystem i guess 
And are certain dog breeds really smarter than others as well? This is this is really really topical. Have you heard about this this um, research? I guess you have that came out last week. Did you hear about this? And it was really cool, wasn't it? It's great. So it's like a really really big sample size investigating um, the behaviours of different dog breeds and trying to work out which are down to breed genetics and which are down to nature versus nurture, essentially. And this paper, one of the biggest of its kind, one of the biggest studies of its kind, basically says. Well, you know, breeds matter a tiny bit, but they're not the best predictor of how uh, what behaviour a, a dog is going to have. I think it accounts for something like 7% of the, the behaviours that we see. Breed accounts for 70, 7% of the, those behaviours. And in fact, that goes back, that's actually a kind of repeat of a longitudinal study that was done in the 1960s when um, the genetics of behaviour was first being explored, like a 10-year study looking at different breeds and seeing how they behave and also comparing the the raising of puppies and seeing the effect that childhood, if you like, in, in, in dogs has on the, the the adults that they become. And yeah, this is clearly, clearly, you know, nature is a factor in the behaviour that we see in our dogs, but also nurture is too. So there are certain things, you, you mentioned your Jack Russells. So your Jack Russells, obviously, um, you know, they have been bred for chasing small mammals and so you know naturally they will have features around them same with our dog our dog's a lurcher Aussie's a a lurcher so you know Aussie goes into a field and he is like Robocop he'll like scan the field (laughs) uh, for you know for any signs of movement and that's very much in his nature that's been bred into him so that's something we kind of have to manage so there's these kind of two opposing camps. The dog world, I mean, I had no idea like how sort of political it is in many ways. And there are people that are like, okay, dogs are a blank slate. If you have a good dog, that's because you have provided a good home. And there's other people that have kind of got dogs with trouble, you know, with troubles and they're confused, you know. You know, for instance, there's I came across a few dog owners, for instance, who had dogs that were kind of, you know, chasing around the kids in a nice way, but, you know, in a very boisterous way, chasing around the kids and trying to herd them. And they're like, oh, this is all my fault. This is all my fault. And it's like, well, no, to a degree, those are bred behaviours. So I guess what I'm trying to say is dogs are a complete meringue of all these different um, ingredients. And I suppose that's kind of the, the fun in trying to interpret what they're like it's a little bit like you know i sometimes i don't know if you do this but i sometimes think of science is like the topic of dogs dogs are a big marble you know chunk of rock and i suppose over the last 50 years scientists have been chiseling away at this rock and we're getting ever closer to what the truth is regarding nature and nurture and what the truth is regarding dogs and how they behave we're still chiseling away and we'll get there eventually, but it might not be, we kind of have to accept it might not be in our lifetimes. <laughs> so there's a sort of magic and beauty to it, I suppose. So you discussed one of those studies that you uh, read about when you were researching your book, where you put the wolves against the dogs. But what other studies have there been that have enabled us to establish dog intelligence and to help us sort of get a good idea of it? Yeah, this this started about twenty years ago. Once dogs were brought back into the um, back into the team, the science team, I suppose, in around the two thousands, there's a there's a few different studies that really enlighten us about what dogs are capable of. One of the most interesting ones was um, it all started with a dog on Germany's version of You Bet, and this was a really popular Saturday night TV series. 
and they had a dog on this um, that had been trained really well and it could collect more than 200 different toys by name. And this was a big deal. A lot, there was a couple of evolutionary biologists who were watching this on telly and they were like, that is unusual. You know, that's really weird. So they set about trying to, you know, understand what was going on here and, and exactly how dogs manage this. And in fact, when we hear about this thing about all oh, dogs are as clever as a three-year-old, that's often what they're referring to is this, this, uh, this ability dogs have to um, interpret words and give them um, a degree of meaning, you know, object meaning, I suppose. So there was these, those studies that, that really started to wake um, cognitive scientists up to the, the feats of dogs. And later on, many dogs went on to be trained, you know, in collecting more than 300 items. One of these dogs, Chaser, was able to collect more than 1,000 items and understand things like put the dog on the table or put the toy under the rock, you know, is able to do this. It's called many-to-one mapping. So those kind of studies became uh, very interesting to um, scientists. And then there was the emotional intelligence kind of studies. Um, One of the most interesting was... The one that I, I keep coming back to is a really good proof of concept, I suppose. And that is the fact that about 10 years ago, dogs started to be trained, house dogs, family dogs, trained to sit in fMRI machines and basically allow their brains to be scanned. Um, and so scientists could see for the first time the emotional centers of dogs um, and how they light up in the same ways that we do, you know, when we see an object we love, a family member, for instance, you know, dogs have the same part of the brain called the chordate nucleus lights up in, in the same way. So there are two examples of the kinds of studies that are, uh, that have moved us forward, I suppose, you know, in our knowledge, in how, in how, in our understanding of dog example, but there are, you know, others out there, to, you know, too, and to, including this, this, the whole idea that dogs are very good at understanding human gestures so the human points, you know, for a long time, we thought humans were the only apes uh, or, and by extension animal able to understand the massiveness of I'm pointing at that object and my pointed finger is an indication of the direction of that object. And again, dogs have been shown to be one of the animals capable of understanding uh, pointing uh, gestures. And, uh, you know, those kinds of experiments are what makes dog cognition so exciting, I suppose. You know, we've got these family dogs and they're treated with love by you know the the scientists and the volunteers who work in those schemes and give us some really good pointers i suppose a good way in to understand you know animal minds one thing I've seen a lot of online recently is these speakers where you can sort of set them up to say different things and then the dog will hit them in turn saying like, I want a walk. And I'm always a bit dubious about how real that is. You think, is the dog just know it gets a treat if it happens to hit these in the right order or does it really understand what these sounds are meaning? Yeah, that's really interesting. Earlier on, I mentioned that um, longitudinal study about nature versus nurture. And, and the fact we're talking about this now, 40, 50, 60 years later, one of the things that I came to appreciate is much, not all, but much of the science we consider today, these amazing new method- methodologies that we're using, they just, they've been done before. And like this latest one is a great example. So there's a few accounts on Instagram um, that are doing really well. And they, they, the dogs have a soundboard, don't they? And they go, uh, they go up to the soundboard and they, like, they might press like food outside play and they choose the button and get the reward and in fact that goes back to a guy um called um john lubbock who was actually the inventor of bank holidays he gave his dog van different signs so there was like food there was like bone 
there was another sign, a handwritten sign that said like outside and another sign that said water. And basically trained the dog to pick up, you know, rewarded the dog depending on the sign that he picked up. And within like three months, he had a dog that essentially was in in Lubbock's mind, you know, communicating, genuinely communicating. And in fact, the the fact that I think in 150 trials, the fact that the dog was picking up the food, you know, sign in something like 100, almost 100 of those trials, you know, led Lubbock to be kind of like, okay, well, that is essentially the basics of animal communication. This dog has learned sign language and even spelt out the words phonetically for the dog. And in many ways, that's what we're seeing with um, these soundboards, the dogs using soundboards. The contentiousness of it, I suppose, and the reason that that kind of science in, in most animal cognition studies is kind of not necessarily being explored is because it's impossible, really hard to separate the, the variables. So, for instance, the example that um, the dog scientist Andrea Horovitz uses is, you know, those in Australia, you've got minor birds and they, you know, famously imitate the noise of chainsaws and stuff, don't they? And if you had a minor bird, this is her example, if you had a minor bird that, you know, called out timber, does the minor bird understand the concept of timber does it understand that it's about the direction the tree might fall or that it's associated with chainsaws or that it's to do with harvesting or it's a a word that you know we use across cultures for this one particular moment it doesn't need to i mean it's, it can just be just a, a noise that it's associated to so ascribing an understanding of words to these behaviors i'm a little bit a tiny bit uncomfortable with it but i'm not completely close to the idea but with those tests, I always think with these videos on Instagram, and this applies to loads of things, it's like, I wonder how many tests there were before that. You don't, there's no, they need a little statistic in the corner, like trial number 140 or something like that to help us kind of understand that. So yeah, I, I want I want that sort of science, but I want it to kind of be done, you know what I mean? In like test worthy conditions, I suppose. But it's fascinating. It's really, really fascinating. But you know, our dogs, our, our, our dogs, in some ways are using sign language on us all the time. You know, you must have it the same as me and your listeners will feel the same. You go and get the, the dog lead or there's a certain routine of behaviours I do in a row and the dog's like, right then, here we go. I'm going to get groomed. I'm going to get a nice little treat. And that is, you know, emptying the dishwasher, emptying the washing machine, putting the clothes out on the radiators and the dog's like, okay, and here we go. You know, so in some ways the dog's, you know, the dog's, not manipulating me, but the dogs manipulating the routine behaviours that I'm doing in the same way that dogs in Lubbock study and on Instagram are kind of doing too. So we talk about intelligence, but do dogs have a sense of self? I mean, I know psychologists love the mirror test to say whether an animal can identify themselves in the mirror, and that's a sign of higher intelligence. Uh, do dogs show this at all? Yeah, I mean, this links back to what I was saying about IQ tests, really. The, 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 the mirror test is, in principle, it makes a lot of sense. And so the mirror test is um, was kind of made famous in the 80s and and continued on through the 90s. And this was like you had chimpanzees. In fact, Darwin started it all off, you know, more than 150 years ago with orangutan and orangutan at London Zoo. But basically you give the animal a mirror and if it seems to be using the mirror in a way that suggests they know the thing in the mirror is them, then, wow, you've passed the mirror test. You are self-aware. <laughs> That study, I'm basically being a bit mean on those scientists that did those early studies. But, you know, that's essentially the the, the leap we're supposed to make with, with that. You know, if you see yourself in a mirror and you use the mirror, then you must be the upper echelons of animal intelligence. And in fact, dogs don't 
passed the mirror test, as you've probably seen. Like I think when do you do you remember a, a mirror moment with your with your dogs? I've tried it with them. I've sort of held them up to the mirror and said, oh, who's that in the mirror? But they weren't really that impressed. They didn't really notice. I mean, occasionally they'll look at the window at night and they'll start barking when they see their reflections. We had it, um, like, you know, it worked. Not it didn't work, but, you know, we could get a response from him for about two or three times. He's like, oh, my gosh, when he was a puppy. Like, that's incredible. There's a dog here. And then they, it's so weird, isn't it? They just sort of go, oh, I get it. It's just a little little weird trick trick of the light you know they, just, they, they apparently they can see the, they can see an approaching human so if you go up behind them when, when they've got the mirror then their tail might start wagging so they can clearly you know see something you know, and use a mirror you could say so yeah dogs long time you know they weren't considered capable of, of passing it it was most mostly an ape thing kind of dolphin thing and uh, that was where we were and some fantastic science. Mark Beckoff kind of kicked it off, um, ethologist in the US. And he did something like the yellow snow test with his dog. And basically the yellow snow test is you go for a walk in the snow with your dog. Dog does a wee. You lift up some of the yellow snow and then you surreptitiously on your walk, carry it off and place it in another part um, of the walk. And then you observe whether the dog goes up to it and thinks, oh, this is a nice yellow snow, a nice rival smell, or whether they just go, oh, that's just me, and then they just walk on and don't investigate the smell. And in that case, that single study, you know, that was what happened. So it's like, okay, very interesting. Dogs recognize their own smell, um, just as we recognize our own face in the mirror, and they act, you know, appropriately. And in fact, that study has been repeated um, with much more scientific rigor by using test tubes of different odors and different uh, urines and seeing you know how dogs respond and yeah you know confidently we can say they recognize their own smell and behave accordingly and that's a great example of you know I often think with animal science and I wonder with your background if you think the same this really massive human tendency to just just go the human brain is the antithesis It's where we were all supposed to be heading and these mere animals like can they really see things like we can this massive assumption i suppose that the human way the human senses are you know how you interpret the world in a really full way and in fact i've said this a few times you know over the years that you know this 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 oh, you know humans we hold a magnifying glass to nature and too often we just go oh look there's, there's our reflection in there <laughs> and we forget so actually look through the magnifying glass at what animals are kind of seeing and doing and smelling in this case. And in fact, that, that, that sniff test, you know, went on to, I suppose, encourage scientists or dog scientists to look at other ways you can test self-recognition in animals. And, and one of the other big ideas in the 70s and 80s was this idea of kind of theory of mind. So can animals appreciate that they are just one mind in a sea of other minds and can they manipulate other minds if they need to? And again, it links to that understanding of self-awareness. And one of my favourite, genuinely one of my favourite studies relating to all animals on Earth, right, is the one to do Alexandra Horowitz's play study where she, she basically gets loads of dogs and she records them in slow motion, frame by frame. She analyses their movements and, and, and really what she has proven um, in the last 15 years is that actually dogs when they're playing are making these minute judgments based upon their wants and needs and 
I've got a dog that absolutely loves playing, absolutely loves it. He's quite shy. He's a bit like me, really. He's quite shy, but actually when, he's, when he gets himself there, he just loves it. And in fact, those sorts of dogs, what they're doing is they're just running up to other dogs uh, in a good way, running up to them and just kind of like, hey, hey, can we play? Can we play? And if there's something else going on, if that dog they're trying to play with has got his eyes on, like, I don't know, a bird or something like that, then, you know, my dog or other dogs are like kind of they're getting into the field of view of the other dog. Hey, can we play? Can we play? And if that's not working, then they're kind of like barking a little bit like, hey, can we play? Hey, hey, hey. So, you know, these are, these are, if this was apes, we'd be like, oh yeah, that's totally ape behavior. But it's not, it's an animal, you know, that we once considered cognitively inferior, I suppose. So again, it's that theme of how ideas change and again, how dogs can sort of reframe the science of animal minds, I guess. And on that subject then, so can our improved understanding of dog intelligence lead to new understandings of human intelligence? Can they teach us about ourselves? Yeah, this is one of the most exciting areas of animal cognition. And again, it's something that goes back like 50 years in time. The example I'll I'll take is actually from early studies of something called learned helplessness, which is something that was first seen in dogs, first described in dogs. And unfortunately, you know, it was because it was uh, actually 70 years ago, this involved dogs being given electric shocks, which is a history of science that I kind of want to I do want to talk about because I think it's important for us to know the the kind of trajectory where we've come from in understanding animal minds. But, you know, one of the observations from some dogs given electric shots, they're basically given a, a way, a, a, a little cage, really, in which there's a, a pad which gives electric shocks and there's a safe zone. And what they noticed is that dogs, some dogs given electric shocks didn't even bother to find the safe zone. So they basically just endured and they just... You know, they just didn't even try, basically, to, to, to get away from this really negative, horrible um, stimulus. And the scientists called it learned helplessness. And they wondered whether or not this could explain some aspects of human uh, society and human culture. And the interesting thing, they wanted to repair these dogs that had learned helplessness. So they basically helped the dogs. They physically manipulated them to actually move away from this electrical charge and realised that, oh, wow, that's interesting. You can kind of cure learned helplessness. And in fact, those ideas directly inspired cognitive behavioural therapy, so CBT, which is obviously used by you know millions and millions of people, um, including the NHS, obviously rely on it to a degree as well. So CBT is about reframing negatives, I suppose, and associating, not necessarily going down a path of kind of like, there's no point in trying, everything's bad, but picking out the positive associations and really working on those. And in fact, those, again, longitudinal studies that investigated the use of uh, CBT uh, in children in schools, you know, suggest that actually year on year that does have, a, a, you know, an improvement in terms of uh, mental health um, outcomes. So that's an example of from the, you know, the, the horrible age, I suppose, of dog experimentation that has directly in- influenced, you know, our knowledge today. Now, my hope is that now, now we're in this boom time for understanding um, dog cognition, uh, that there will be an applications possibly that humans can take on, I suppose. And again, they might be toward, uh, you know, an understanding of depression. It might be understanding anxiousness. My gut feeling is actually it will be the other way around. I mean, there is more psychologists working today than there are zoologists or animal cognition scientists, I think, or I suspect. 
So my gut feeling is it'll be the other way around. We learn more about humans and we can apply those our learnings, I suppose, to dogs. And there's a market for that because I think the vast majority of dog owners definitely, definitely want their dogs to be kept in you know, a really positive environment where they're kind of flourishing, I suppose. So, but it's really interesting, this, that idea that, oh, wow, human brains, dog brains, you can apply similar treatments, if you like, to both. That was an idea that was a long time coming. You know, Darwin kind of posited it first, and then it takes, what, 150 years for it to become the kind of like, oh, so they, you know, dogs and humans and other mammals are on a spectrum, I suppose, of intelligence. And intelligence means many things, and it's very much a, a kind of, uh, movable feast, I suppose, between animals. So again, the, the history of these ideas, for me, it's been really enlightening just considering science for the first time for me to actually considering this, this as a journey rather than a kind of like, here's what dogs know, here's what they think, here's what they smell, which is, you know, very useful, but it's a different kind of story, I guess. Yeah, because there are a lot of similarities between human brains and dog brains, aren't there? You've said we've put them into the fMRI scanners and just to how we now understand them, you can just see how similar they are, really. Yeah, and also to a degree, some of the neurotransmitters and hormones that we share, uh, all mammals share. And oxytocin is one your listeners uh, you know, will, I'm sure, know about because we talk about it quite a lot. I'm not going to call it the love hormone because I absolutely hate that term. But, you know, it's obviously clearly associated with, with attachment in mammals and the fact that we can show really easily, just basically by weeing into a cup, you know, we can show that oxytocin levels do seem to rise and fall depending on even just gazing at a dog or even having the dog gaze at us. You know, those attachments are really, really clear and obvious. And in fact, in the book I mentioned, the it, there was a in the 1960s, uh, 1950s, a... Uh, uh, psychological is called the stranger the, the strange situation test and you have like child and you have parent and in a strange situation where say a stranger enters the room the child will naturally find sort of shelter behind the adult or naturally the child will come towards the parent sorry so the stranger comes in child moves towards parent so it's a nice simple study you can just do and in fact that was then applied in 1999 i think to uh, to dogs and dogs do the same sort of thing in strange situations so it's another example of actually where psychology modern day human psychology i suppose it is starting to overlap with um, other animals and again the key theme is family dogs you know often in the modern day the last 20 years these are family dogs they are like kept the same kinds of dogs that you and i and your listeners keep but they are through fun and through positive rewards getting involved in some really really cool research in a way that we we can't manage with apes I love apes. We all love apes and dolphins. They're clearly really intelligent. But I suspect trying to do these kinds of studies on apes and maintain their psychological health and physical health is really, really, really tough. Hopefully we'll get there. But my, my gut feeling is that dogs will help us do that. So speaking of house pets and how they've helped us um, understand more about psychology and cognition, my dogs, they've been trained, but sometimes they just refuse to do what I ask. So are they stupid or are they stubborn? <laughs> what do they, what, do you, what are you asking them to, are you asking them to like assemble Meccano or what? <laughs> no, I ask them to go on their beds and they know if they go on their beds, they get a treat. And most of the time they do it, but sometimes they'll just look at me and just go, no. No, not today. So. My dog does that as well sometimes. Like I sometimes feel, I really envy those people who whose dogs 
really, really do kind of, I don't like the word obey. It just sounds awful, doesn't it? But like, you know, who, who will do basically uh, anything they're told almost without expectation of treats. And our dog isn't like that. He's only one. Uh, but I wonder if you see this as well. There's a kind of weird negotiation. So if I say to Oz, our dog, like, you know, on your bed, you know, he'll do it. And then if I say it again, if he gets up for some reason and I do it again, he definitely gets this like look in his eye that basically he's like, I'm ready to negotiate. Where are the biscuits? Are they biscuits? How many biscuits? Let's see. Like, let's see how many biscuits there are. And in some ways, a little bit of me, I quite like that in a way. I like, I like the fact that there is, a, you know, this sort of interplay. And I, so I don't, I don't know. I think, I don't know. I think dogs can clearly be stubborn and I'm not, I'm not comfortable really, you know, saying that it's stupidity. So yeah, I'm not, I'm going to, I'm going to sit on the fence. Is that okay? I'm going to sit on the fence on this one. So is it possible to teach an old dog or a rescue dog new behaviour then? There is such an amazing community of dog rescuers who are able to do just that. And they put in, I mean, some of these guys, I'm in total awe of them, you know, they're putting in, it's basically their day job, I suppose, is rehabilitating these dogs and slowly getting them used to new situations. Even going out on a lead can be really, really difficult for a lot of rescue dogs interacting with other dogs obviously now there are you know there are clearly you go for most walks around most towns you're going to bump into a lot of dogs and this is a really really taxing situation for a lot of dog rehabilitators so yes absolutely but it takes work it takes work in older dogs that have kind of been abused their whole lives you've got mountains of um issues to sort of overcome but i think that's one of the most wonderful things really about the hours these guys are putting in is that you you know you do see you do see differences in nearly all cases so yeah absolutely definitely and my dogs at the moment they're young they're 9 months old but as they get older is there any way i can keep their brain sharp yeah, that's such a good question. Like, you know, I, I, we, we've, we've talked a bit about this overlap between human brains and dog brains and mammal brains by extension. So in situations with questions like that, I'm always like, well, what would humans do? And I don't know about you, but I uh, love a bit of Wordle and cross, uh, crosswords and things like that. And certainly I've seen the effect that, that crosswords and those kinds of puzzles have had on even my family uh, in terms of keeping their brains really, really, really sharp. Now, obviously, dogs, there is no such thing as a dog crossword. As far as I know, there probably is, though, isn't there? Someone's probably invented a dog crossword with little biscuits, but I don't know. But those kind of puzzles, I think, are really good for keeping dogs sharp. If do- Some dogs, obviously, can't necessarily be you know, outdoors if they are, you know, in terms of rescue dogs, and if they're being rehabilitated, that's going to be difficult. But clearly getting dogs out and seeing new things and experiencing new smells, and the classic one is, you know, giving dogs time to smell – you know, is really, really important. Smelling is like, I always think it's like their version of reading, you know? (laughs) I've read a good book today. I've smelled a really good rotting carcass. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, those things, the, the, the multitude of experiences are really, really important. So I think that's a kind of lesson to us and it's a lesson to dogs as well. Thank you for listening to this episode of Instant Genius. That was zoologist Jules Howard. To hear him tell me even more about dogs and the history of their use in scientific research, head over to the Instant Genius Extra podcast now. The latest issue of BBC Science Focus magazine is out now. Pick up a copy in store or visit sciencefocus.com. Thank you.